The only people who are reading the Bible are uh, monks. Uh, not even all priests in local parishes would be able to read. Many of them were illiterate. They would memorize the Mass. And so one can imagine the sort of things that they were telling people. Hey, welcome to the Indo Podcast Show, the show where you'll hear about the issues and topics of life and faith that we all run into sometime or another. I'm Isaac, your host. I'm excited to be finishing our two-week series on earlier church history with Dr. Michael Haken this week as we get into the medieval era. As I explained last week, we're splitting this four-episode series into two separate series. Anyways, I don't want to take too much time here, so let's just get right into the conversation with Dr. Michael Haken in regards to the medieval era. Well, it's a privilege once again to be talking with Dr. Michael Haken. He's a professor of church history and biblical spirituality at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on the history uh, of the church. That's what we're digging into. Uh, Michael has committed to bringing us uh, through kind of year 100 to pretty much the present day. And obviously we know that he's merely going to be scratching the surface because there's so much there. Um, but thanks for being here with us, Michael. My pleasure. Great to be with you. If you want to hear more about who Michael is kind of personally and kind of hear how church history became a subject of importance to him, I encourage you to go back one week and, and listen into that specific part. But anyways, let's get in here. Uh, we're going to, uh, Michael's going to be sharing with us about the, the medieval world uh, and its and its challenges. Yes. Um, as I was uh, talking about last week when we were together, uh, we were looking at uh, Augustine as, you know, the great gift of the early church, yeah. uh, his thoughts and uh, the Doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Augustine died in uh, the year 430, and um, when he was dying, uh, a group known as the Vandals were at the city gates, Mm. besieging the city. And um, he dies in North Africa, modern Tunisia uh, is where he would have lived and died. Um, And the Vandals came from Denmark, what is now modern Denmark, and you think like, well, (laughs) <laughs> Whoa, hey, wait a minute, eh? Uh, these guys are miles away. How did they end up in North Africa? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, uh, well, in the early 400s, uh, 406, 407, uh, there had been a very severe winter in which the Roman frontier in in Europe, which was the Rhine River, froze. The Romans used the Rhine as a frontier because it, it, had, it had never frozen. Right. Um, but they didn't know uh, is that Europe was entering a mini ice age, and... Mm. Uh, the winter of 406, 407 was sufficiently cold enough for the Rhine to freeze, and around 200,000 Germanic warriors from various tribes, Burgundians, Alans, Swavy, Franks, Vandals, Goths, uh, crossed. And they were never driven out, and eventually brought their families. And this is the beginning of the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. In the East, it continues for another thousand years. Mm. Um, but in the West, it, it collapses in the 5th century. And by the end of the 5th century, you're living in a very different world right. in the Western Europe. It's now a world dominated by various um, barbarian kingdoms, wow. uh, like the Visigoths in Spain, uh, the Franks and Burgundians in what is France, the Ostrogoths, then the Lombards in Italy, mm. uh, the Vandals in North Africa. And uh, with the collapse of Roman military power, there was a collapse of, of a variety of other things as well. Uh, urban life collapsed. So Rome, which we noted last week, had a population of a million people. Mm. Uh, by 700, is down to around 25,000. 
And it's just a, just a complete collapse of urban life and yeah. urban culture. Um, schools, universities disappear. Literacy disappears. Mm-hmm. Some ways, the Middle Ages is a thousand years of illiteracy. In some ways, I mean, there's, there's literate people obviously all the way through it. Yeah. And with the recovery of university life and urban life in around the 11, 1200s, there is the growth of literacy. But in many respects, uh, it is a much more illiterate age yeah. uh, than the, the early church. And that means a loss of uh, the knowledge of Scripture. Yeah. Um, the only people who are reading the Bible are uh, monks. Uh, not even all priests in local parishes would be able to read. Wow. Many of them were illiterate. They would memorize the Mass. Yeah. And so one can imagine, only imagine the sort of things that they were telling people. Oh, for sure. Um, so it's a complete collapse. Yeah. of uh, biblical literacy, along with this larger collapse of learned life, mm-hmm. uh, urban life, and so on. Um, and um, the Christianity is the dominant uh, religion, but it's a veneer. Mm. All of Europe eventually embraces a Trinitarian Christianity. Okay. But as I said, it's a veneer. Um, the one bright spot is the Celtic Church in Ireland. Interesting. Which okay. uh, was evangelized by Patrick. Uh, he took the gospel there in the early 5th century. And um, it uh, becomes a center of mission, learning, begins to evangelize other parts of Europe. Wow. Um, by the 8th century, it's kind of run out of steam. Right. And uh, the true Dark Ages is probably in the 8th and ninth centuries. Okay. The other key factor in this whole period, too, is the rise of Islam. Right. Um, Islam emerges out of the Saudi Peninsula, uh, obedient to the revelations that had purportedly been given to Muhammad Mm -hmm. in the early 600s. By the year 700, Muslims, in terms of their religious fervor and enthusiasm, have conquered all of North Africa. Um, over the next centuries, Christianity is pretty well eliminated completely in North Africa, except in Egypt, yeah. where it survives as the Coptic Church. They've conquered large amounts of the Middle East, uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, Damascus, all of these cities that have been centers of Christianity, early Christianity, fall to um, Islam. Now, are they converting people, or are they, like, slaying uh, these Christians? Um, you've pretty well got a sort of scenario that you find today. You've got a choice of conversion or the sword. Okay. Wow. Uh, in certain contexts, for some reason, for some reason, in Egypt, the church is strong enough to survive, but it, it survives as a minority. Hmm. It survives as second-class citizens, and non-Muslims are regularly taxed at a higher rate okay. in these various countries, and they have to pay these uh, exorbitant taxes, um, etc. Um, and then uh, the Muslims cross into Spain in 700 and conquer Spain. And one of the major areas of the life of the medieval church is what's called the Reconquista, which is the reconquest of Spain by Christian princes. Okay. Um, But it introduces a very sad element into the life of the church, which is forcible, uh, just as the Muslims had forcibly compelled uh, Christians to embrace Islam, now uh, Christians do the same with Muslims. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so forcible conversion of people groups becomes a pattern in the early Middle Middle Ages. Uh, You find this particularly among, for instance, the Saxons, uh, the great um, king uh, Charlemagne, or Charles the Great, in what is now France and Germany, um, 
purport, uh, well, he converts the Saxons but at the point of the sword. Wow, yeah. And um, so it's a period then of really a large amount of nominal Christianity, massive superstition. Yeah. And a good example of superstition are what we call the relics. Okay. And the relics were, generally speaking, parts of the bodies of saints. Right. And it was believed that these parts of the bodies of saints had enormous power. Yeah. Um, because they represented the saints. Uh, the saints being those men and women who had so lived, uh, their lives had been so holy that they were admitted to heaven in the presence of Christ right. uh, without going through any sort of intermediate purgation right. uh, of their sin. Um, the majority of the faithful, it was believed, would end up in a place called purgatory. Right. And uh, But the, the saints go immediately to heaven. Everybody in purgatory eventually gets to heaven. Right. Uh, the problem is you're going to have to spend a million years getting rid of your sin. <laughs> um, and but again, this is this goes back to a biblical literacy. It's it's a loss of confidence in right. the the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. Uh, failed to failure to understand the nature of the atonement, yeah. the work of the cross, etc. Well, that's why even as you're saying this, I'm just I, I I'm even kind of looking ahead to the to the Reformation uh, when you have people like Zwingli and stuff like that that are bringing in. It's like we got to get back to the Bible, you know? Uh, yeah, and, exactly. And it, it, we revive that. So that that's really interesting. Yeah. Now, when you talk about the relics, at this point, obviously there is. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is sort of the the, the Orthodox kind of Christians to the East, and then you have the, the more Western Christianity like Catholicism at this point. Um, that's correct. Yes. There is. Um, uh, with the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, the two main centers of Christianity, Western Latin-speaking Christianity right. and Eastern Greek-speaking Christianity, okay. are to some degree sundered because of the different political scenarios they're right. now living in. Right. Uh, Eastern Christianity is living still in a, uh, an ongoing, revived Roman Empire, which is called the Byzantine Empire, Right. which will last until 1453 when Constantinople falls to the Muslim and the end of that uh, institution comes. And the West is living under these various barbarian kingdoms who are now embracing a nominal Christianity. Right. Uh, so it's a very different political scenario. It's also very different in terms of linguistic. Um, the, the West speaks Latin, they, and they can't understand Greek, and the yeah. vice versa. The, the East speaks Greek and can't understand Latin. Yeah. And then after uh, the uh, 11th century, in the mid of the Lent century, 1050s, there is a, a formal schism between the West and the East. Right, okay. And so Eastern Christianity will persist through this period. Um, it has its own mission endeavors. Yeah. Um, people like Cyril and Methodius in the 800s taking Christianity into Russia. Okay. Uh, certainly Russia, the conversion of the Russians is a major um major elements in the growth of Christianity in this period. Okay. Uh, again, a lot of it is nominal. Yeah. Um, and uh, now, there are obviously key differences between East and West. Mm-hmm. Um, the West has centered its kind of ecclesial polity, its church polity, in a pope. Okay. Uh, the pope is believed to have supreme power. Yeah. Over not only the church, but also temporal princes. Wow. Okay. And uh, so a large part of the Middle Ages is the Pope's struggle with temporal princes for really kind of political control of Europe. Mm. Uh, In the East, uh, you have various patriarchs, none of whom claims to be the supreme uh, religious figure. Okay. And so you don't have the papacy in the East. 
Um, but you do have the nominalism. Right. And um, uh, that obviously is a major problem. And your biblical literacy in both both areas. Now, was the, was it the, uh, when you think of the schism, when you talk about the schism uh, in the 11th century, was it based on this idea of the Pope and, and so forth? Or was there something else that was like kind of the, the center point of that? The center point is what we technically know as the filioque, which is the filioque in Latin means and the son. And uh, in the Nicene Creed, which we looked at last week, I mentioned it briefly. Yeah. We talked, mentioned that the Nicene Creed in 381 confessed that the Holy Spirit is worshipped and glorified with the Father and the Son. Hmm. Uh, well, a part of that statement is that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And the West added the little phrase and the Son. Hmm. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son which the Eastern Church felt was an undermining of the unity of the Godhead. Okay. It's a very complex issue, uh, <laughs> theologically. Um, when I was a, a much younger, a more naive Christian historian, I thought it was much ado about little. Okay. But I've since come to the view that, no, it, 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 underlying it was a very important insight of the Western Church, which is that the Holy Spirit is always... Uh, the Holy Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, and there is a, a Christological orientation to the Holy Spirit's work, a Christ-centeredness to the Holy Spirit's work. Yeah, no, uh, Jesus had said, after all, in John 16, that Christ, when the Spirit comes, He will glorify the Lord Jesus, right. and that is Him. Right. And so I think the, the Western Church was not, it, it was not inappropriate for the Western Church to add that phrase. Right. But it, it, it precipitated, that was the, the precipitation of the schism. But, uh, uh, which still lasts to, to technically till this day. Hmm. But having said that, there there are m- other factors involved. The political factors of the claims of the papacy being one. Okay. Uh, the Pope definitely claimed authority that the Eastern churches would not were not prepared to admit. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Now you mentioned those in in Ireland <laughs> as sort of being this uh, beacon of light. Uh, but what what are some other sort of uh, figures uh, that we should be kind of just kn- we should know about uh, kind of church fathers in this kind of dark time in the medieval period? Yeah. There. I mean, um, there's a number of key figures who never leave the Roman Church. I mean, it's very interesting that um, uh, up until the Reformation, things like you know, could you believe in justification by faith alone? Yes. Right. Could you believe in sola scriptura? Yes. Right. Uh, in some ways, the position of the Roman Church over against what we know as the Reformation is not codified until the Reformation. Mm, and so we have some remarkable theologians in the medieval period, people like Anselm, okay. who hammers out, you know, the whole idea of Christ's death as an atoning sacrifice for right. sinners. Or Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, John Calvin loved uh, the writings of Bernard of Clairvaux. Mm. Um, Man not without his faults, but just a remarkable lover of the Lord Jesus. Right. And uh, various figures like um, uh, Pierre Valdez, who died somewhere between 1205 and 1218. Um, He he rejects the idea of the Roman Catholic priesthood, the papacy, um, and various other key doctrines of the Roman Church is uh, persecuted. Right. Uh, his followers are known as the Waldensians, okay. um, who are a key body of people who would be um, maintaining a really kind of gospel gospel light in this period. Mm. Or John Wycliffe, right. uh, born around 1330, dies in 1384. Right. Um, he too rejects the authority of the Pope. Uh, the, uh, at one point says the, the Pope may well be the head vicar of the devil. 
Wow. <laughs> Not Christ. Yeah. Um, maintain scripture alone as the authority in the believer's life. Translates mm. the Bible into English. Yeah. Uh, his translation came from the Latin. Yeah. But uh, gave the Bible to people. Wow. Um, those who could read. Um, his followers, known as the Lollers, yes, are a very, very important group. Uh, they would be um, uh, where they were strong in various parts of England uh, in the 1400s, in the 1500s, when the Re- Reformation comes. Those are the, the first areas uh, where the Reformation is embraced. Okay. Um, Jan Hus, right. H-U-S, a Czech reformer, a national hero in uh, the Czech Republic today. Um, uh, I was martyred in 1415 at the Council of Constance in Switzerland, hmm. uh, maintained, again, similar views to Waldez and uh, Wycliffe. Okay. And so there are these men uh, who are within the Roman Church, men like Anselm Bernard, who are solid yeah. uh, in many ways. There are those outside the Roman Church. Uh, right. they, they end up leaving or being kicked out or being described as heretics by medieval Roman Church, but they're they really are, are, are lights. It's not surprising that uh, John Wycliffe is sometimes described as the morning star of the Reformation. Yes. You talked last week about the uh, the patristic period, and you said that the kind of overall kind of theme, or something that you think is good to know about it, is that this uh, development of the Trinity, all the hard work put into kind of understanding that doctrine. So what would you say is the sort of the main kind of theme or point uh, in regards to this medieval time? I think it probably is a, is, a, is a negative one. I think it's the danger of um, of political power mm. and the church. The church, you see, the church is is is, is wed with the political powers. Right. And um, the, the statement that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely was made by an historian named uh, Elton in the 19th century. He was a Roman Catholic actually, and he was speaking about the Roman Catholic papacy. Mm. And um, uh, it, it's, it's a complete departure okay. uh, from the, the um, early church, and not only the New Testament, but also the early church, where the bishop was a, regarded as a loving, caring, teaching, mission-minded pastor. Right. Oh, by the Middle Ages, he's become a secular prince. Mm. And so if, if the, the key areas of the early Church that we have to remember are the Doctrine of the Trinity, the life of Augustine, for instance, uh, in the medieval period, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, to some degree a mag- negative lesson, the yeah. danger of war. Well, it, it, it almost seems like uh, you sort of have this mountain valley and then the Reformation is another mountain, <laughs> as, yeah. I, as I kind of see it that way. Uh, yeah. that's, that's interesting. Okay, well, well, thank you so much, Michael, and I look forward to finishing the series at a later date. Thank you. That's great. That was Dr. Haken from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So next week, we start a brand new mini-series that's actually a live recording of a Q&A I have the privilege of hosting all on sexual identity. I'm really excited to release this as a podcast. The guests participated with me were Dr. John Newfeld from Back to Bible Canada, uh, Steve Kim from Apologetics Canada, as well as Pastor Dave Johnson from Ethos Young Adults. See, the questions asked were not, you know, these unoriginal questions, and the answers were definitely not uh, cookie-cutter, which is great. This will be a series series you won't want to miss. Also, if the In Out podcast show is something you enjoy on a weekly, monthly, or, you know, once in a while basis, would you consider helping us out financially? 
the InDoubt podcast and everything else we do at InDoubt isn't run by funds we've somehow gained through profit. We're a charity and run solely based off people like you. Even if you're able to give just five or ten dollars, it would mean a lot. If this interests you, just head to indo.ca and click the donate button. If you're, you know, one of our American listeners, do the same thing, but be sure to click on the For U.S. Residents button. Well, that wraps up the Indo podcast. To connect with us during the week, head to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram page. To tell us a story, give us a suggestion of a topic or a speaker, or maybe you just want to say hi, just email us at info at indo.ca. Well, I'm Isaac, and next week we listen to part one of Sexual Identity Questions and Answers. In Doubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. For more podcasts, blogs, and videos, visit backtothebible.ca slash in doubt. Thank you.